Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. China rejecting claims it's trapping African countries in debt as African leaders arrive in Washington for a U.S.-Africa summit. Illegal immigrants in Washington might soon be eligible for health insurance, and the White House is asking for money to increase border security ahead of a major border policy set to expire this month. Pleading the fifth cover-ups, a plan to launder money from the very beginning? We bring you analysis on the Bahamas arrest of the former FTX chief. Passing the annual defense bill can be a highly charged affair. Many politicians try to attach various conditions in exchange for a yes vote. We take a look at what's hidden in this year's version. Workers have cleaned up almost 2,600 barrels of oil spilled from the Keystone Pipeline. That's out of a spillage of 14,000 barrels. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm has announced a major scientific breakthrough. It comes after a decades-long quest to tap nuclear fusion, the energy that powers the sun and stars. What does this accomplishment do? Two things. First, it strengthens our national security because it opens a new realm for maintaining a safe, secure, and effective nuclear deterrent in an age where we do not have nuclear testing. And the second thing it does, of course, is that this milestone moves us one significant step closer to the possibility of zero carbon, abundant fusion energy powering our society. For the first time, researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California have produced more energy in a nuclear fusion reaction than was used to ignite it. It's known as a net energy gain. A White House science advisor called the fusion ignition, quote, an engineering marvel beyond belief. It will still take decades for nuclear fusion to power homes and businesses, but researchers say it's still a significant step. China's ambassador to the United States is rejecting claims that Beijing has trapped African countries with debt. Instead, he says African countries owe more debt to Western institutions. This ahead of the U.S.-Africa summit this week. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more. President Joe Biden is hosting dozens of African leaders for a summit this week in Washington, D.C. On Monday, China's ambassador to the United States deflected criticism of Beijing's own relationships with African countries. The Chinese official said China's investment and financing assistance is not a trap, it's a benefit. He cited a July study by the British charity Debt Justice. It said African countries owed three times more debt to Western institutions than to China. Still, analysts say China remains the biggest bilateral lender to Africa in the past decade, although new loan commitments have declined in recent years. Last year, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Washington would have to do things differently to help Africa with its infrastructure. Here's Blinken Monday. Earlier this year in South Africa, I had an opportunity to set out our administration's strategy for the region. And at its core, the strategy can be distilled in one word. You've already heard it spoken tonight. Partnership. President Biden is also expected to announce support for the African Union to join the G20. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Monday, over the next three years, the U.S. will commit $55 billion to Africa. These commitments build on the United States' long-standing leadership and partnership in develop, development, economic growth, health and security in Africa over the past three decades. Sullivan announced a new special representative who will work with U.S.-Africa leaders. He said the rep will make sure what's discussed this week will be translated into durable actions beyond the summit. Biden's foreign policy has emphasized promoting Western countries as a counterweight to China. But U.S. officials have suggested they're not asking African partners to choose between Washington and Beijing. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. China has launched a trade dispute against the United States at the World Trade Organization. It's over U.S. microchip export control measures. The United States passed a sweeping set of regulations in October. The measures aim to undermine China's semiconductor industry. Analysts widely consider the U.S. policy to be a major threat to China's tech ambitions. 
China's Commerce Ministry said the WTO dispute is necessary to address China's concerns and to defend its interests. It added that the U.S. curbs threaten global industrial supply chains. U.S. officials say the export controls are intended to protect national security interests. And a U.S. trade representative said the WTO is not the correct forum to discuss such issues. Meanwhile, the WTO recently ruled against Washington in a separate suit about metal tariffs. That case was also brought by China, among others, but the U.S. rejected the WTO conclusions, citing national security. A border policy called Title 42 is expected to end this month. The government is now asking for billions of dollars to ramp up border security. Meanwhile, the federal government has approved a plan to make illegal immigrants eligible for health care in Washington state. The Biden administration has approved the so-called State Innovation Waiver, allowing Washington state to offer health insurance to illegal immigrants. Washington state requested the waiver to expand residents' access to qualified health plans, standalone qualified dental plans, as well as the state affordability program, regardless of their immigration status. Biden administration departments say the waiver will help Washington work towards its goal of improving health equity and reducing racial disparities by expanding access to coverage for the uninsured population through the state exchange, all the while not increasing costs for those currently enrolled. A senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute reportedly predicts the health insurance waiver in Washington could cost taxpayers up to a billion dollars per year. The waiver will be effective from January 2024 through December 2028, subject to the state accepting specific terms and conditions. Meanwhile, at the southern border on Sunday, 1,500 people crossed the Rio Grande overnight from Mexico into El Paso, Texas. Reports say this could be one of the biggest single crossings ever in the region. In total, CBP encountered about 2,400 illegal immigrants attempting to enter the El Paso sector on Sunday. That's according to a website maintained by the city of El Paso. CBP has not yet published its own statistics for November, but September and October saw a sharp rise in migrant encounters in El Paso from a year ago. Officials are preparing for a further rise in immigrants crossing to the U.S. starting from December 21st, which is when the border policy known as Title 42 is set to expire. Title 42 was implemented by then-President Trump at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Illegal immigrants processed under the policy are not permitted to request asylum in the U.S. and are removed from the country. Department of Homeland Security estimates that between 9,000 to 14,000 immigrants could try to enter the country illegally each day after Title 42 disappears. The White House is now preparing for the predicted influx, asking Congress for more than $3 billion to beef up border security. Officials say they would have asked for the money regardless of Title 42 expiring. The former CEO of the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX has been arrested in the Bahamas. The U.S. has filed criminal charges against him, and he is likely to be extradited to the U.S. We get some analysis on the timing of his arrest, possible cover-ups, and a congressman's response. Joining us now to discuss is author and economist Jeffrey Tucker, who's also the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Good to have you on the show, Jeffrey. Oh, it's nice to be here. We've been following this FTX thing now for, for several weeks because it does impact on the pandemic response and American politics in a very profound way. Right. And Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO, was arrested in the Bahamas the day before he was meant to testify virtually before the House Financial Services Committee. What do you make of this? Uh, well, I, I'm suspicious of it because, of, well, the idea of the Democrats was going to bring him in and ask him some tough questions, but we know the way this thing was going to fall out. I mean, he was the second biggest funder of the Democratic Party. There's a lot of people out there who have a lot of things to cover up. And so the idea is that when he's not under prosecution, he could have been gone there voluntarily, and they could have asked him a lot of softball questions and that sort of thing, and he would have tried to elicit the sympathies of the audience, and then they could f thank him profusely for his... Uh, for his uh, his truthfulness and for his uh, transparency, uh, which is, I think, what would have happened. But now he's in a kind of a slightly different uh, situation where uh, uh, if he is extradited, first of all, it's going to take months because he's going to appeal the extradition. So that's not going to happen. And now we can just kind of uh, forego the uh, appearance uh, altogether by claiming that essentially uh, on the advice of attorneys. He is under prosecution from the U.S. government, therefore can just plead the fifth. And, and that lets both the Democrats off the hook and him off the hook, at least for a while. 
So first, Jeffrey, can you elaborate on some of the things that may possibly be covered up? Well, they're relying on the the traditional stuff. You know, when there's fancy finance going on, <laughs> the government will always rely on things like uh, wire fraud and money laundering, uh, wire transfer fraud. You know, which is what happens when you when you lie and you're running a scam. You can say, well, you didn't tell the truth in your marketing, and then uh, the money laundering charge is just simply that you didn't check all the boxes. Uh, so th those are going to be the kinds of things. But I think what what we're really going to find is that what I'm suspicious of, just to be blunt about it, is that the whole thing was set up in 2019 to be exactly what it became, just a big money laundering uh, operation to get tens of billions of dollars to uh, uh, to, to, to interests uh, here and abroad, nonprofits, universities, uh, politicians that supported a lockdown ideology and otherwise were in, in bed with this whole financial scam. In fact, I'm working today, this afternoon, I think I'm going to drop a complete key of all the players. And I think there's about 200 of them. I just want uh, readers to be aware of who the players are and what their connections are. So quickly, I want to ask you, Representative Lee Zeldin says the House GOP was set to grill Bankman-Fried, but then he was arrested. Zeldin proposed having him testify first. Is that possible? Uh, well, I think I think now that he's arrested, he uh, will will not be cannot be forced to testify. That's my understanding of the law. Or if if he does testify, he could just uh, plead his constitutional rights to uh, uh, against incriminating himself. So I think that you know it's very interesting. I think what we're going to have now is my prediction is we're going to have about three, four, five months of sort of back and forth with the Bahama authorities, and they're not going to turn them over to the U.S. And during that time, the hope will be that the story will die down and nobody really care anymore, and then the whole thing can be swept under the carpet. That's what I think it's, is, uh, they're trying to do. I don't think it's going to work, but I think that's the idea. Very good to have your analysis. Author and economist Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. The House of Representatives just passed the nearly $860 billion National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. That's an annual must-pass bill setting defense spending levels. Here's a look at what's inside the bill and what was left out. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. In a major win for critics of President Biden's COVID-19 policies, this year's NDAA will include a repeal of a vaccine mandate for military service members. Here's Senator Ron Johnson. The bottom line here is the vaccine does not prevent infection, it does not prevent transmission. So why would we make anybody take it? It is insane. Under the mandate, all federal employees, including military service members, were required to take the COVID-19 vaccine or lose their jobs. Efforts to repeal the mandate once and for all ramped up among Republicans over the past several weeks. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Fox News. We will secure lifting that vaccine mandate on our military, because what we're finding is they're kicking out men and women that have been serving. Democrats yielded on the issue, giving Republicans a major policy win. Now turning to Ukraine. The bill will also grant another $800 million of taxpayer funds to the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. The United States has already sent around $68 billion in humanitarian and military assistance to Ukraine in three major packages. Critics point out that Americans are in the dark as to how exactly Ukraine is using the aid. Reports indicate that weapons purchased with taxpayer funds have wound up as far afield as Nigeria, falling into the hands of terror groups. Calls have escalated among Republicans for Ukraine's use of taxpayer funds to be audited. I'm calling for an audit of every single penny that has been sent to Ukraine, including aid money and any other monies that have been given to the Ukrainian government. As for abortion, the bill does not address an abortion policy recently announced by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. That policy would see taxpayer dollars used to fund travel costs for women in the military to get abortions. Republicans were quick to blast the decision with Senator Roger Marshall calling it outrageous. While the text of the bill does not actively give the green light to this policy, it also does not contain language prohibiting it. This means that if the bill passes with no prohibition of the policy, taxpayers will find themselves indirectly footing the bill for abortions. 
Meanwhile, an effort by Senator Amy Klobuchar to attach a controversial bill rider to the package was rejected. The so-called Journalism Competition and Protection Act would supersede some existing antitrust laws. This would enable media companies to band together to negotiate with big tech platforms such as Facebook, Google, and Twitter. Here's Senator Mike Lee. The JCPA uh, has great potential to be disastrous for competition in the news industry itself. Lee says it also has great potential to crush local news under the thumbs of big tech and big media. Senator Joe Manchin's proposal to change fossil fuel permit regulations also didn't make it to the NDAA. Manchin's proposal would make it easier for new fossil fuel ventures to receive a federal green light. Currently, these ventures can take years to kick off due to federal red tape and stringent environmental regulations. The bottom line is how much suffering and how much pain do you want to inflict on the American people for the time? I can assure you, basically, the longer the time goes, the more the price goes up. That's what we're facing in America today in energy. The NDAA will now head to the Senate, where it is likely to pass along largely bipartisan lines. A question mark remains over whether President Biden will sign the bill, as it would undo his August 2021 vaccine mandate. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A suspect accused of making a bomb that killed 270 people in Scotland made his first appearance in a Washington federal court on Monday, ahead of being formally charged in the attack. Former Libyan intelligence operative Abu Aguila Muhammad Masoud Kher al-Marimi's appearance comes 34 years after Pan Am Flight 103 exploded in the air over Lockerbie, Scotland, en route from London to New York City, killing everyone aboard and 11 people on the ground. Among them, Kara Weeps' 20-year-old brother, Richard Manetti. He was hysterical and had a wicked sense of humor, but he also could be, you know, a big brother and be a pain in the butt at times, and I could be a bratty little sister. So it was a, a very normal relationship in that respect. Weeps told Reuters agents alerted her that Masood was in U.S. custody after more than three decades. It was a surreal moment. It was, a, it was one of those, is this really happening? Um, we, I had been cautiously optimistic that it was going to happen when I didn't know, obviously, but I, I had a lot of confidence in our and our, and our officials to have it, to get it done and, and to, to gain custody of him. Court documents described Masoud as an expert bomb maker who joined one of Libya's intelligence services in the 1970s and took part in a number of operations, reaching the rank of colonel. He was indicted for the bombing in 2020. Two other suspects had been previously charged. One was convicted, the other acquitted. Paul Hudson lost his daughter, Melina, in the bombing. He stood outside the court on Monday and said not a day goes by that he doesn't think of her. We did get something back from her. Um, her belongings were scattered all over the Lockerbie countryside. We did get her passport, and we got a notebook. And the notebook um, had on the uh, cover uh, the quote, uh, no one dies unless they're forgotten. And I've tried to live by that. Canada's TC Energy Corporation has cleaned up almost 2,600 barrels of oil spilled from the Keystone Pipeline last week. The crude oil spill is the largest in the U.S. in nearly a decade. NTD's Flinders Kingsley has the story. The Keystone Pipeline has been shut down since a spillage of 14,000 barrels was discovered last Wednesday in Kansas. Officials say the cause has yet to be determined and have started excavation around the pipeline. The incident marks the third spill of several thousand barrels of crude from the Keystone Line in the last five years. The Keystone Pipeline delivers over 620,000 barrels per day from Alberta, Canada to refiners in the Midwest and the Gulf Coast. The oil is also pumped to reserves in Cushing, Oklahoma. If the pipeline shutdown goes past 10 days, the oil stored in these reserves may drop to the operational minimum of 20 million barrels. Aerial footage shows oil sprayed onto a hillside which stained grass in a pasture north of Washington County, Kansas. TC Energy has more than 300 people on site who are vacuuming oil from Mill Creek into trucks. The pipeline cannot resume operation until regulators approve a restart plan in its entirety. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration are monitoring the cleanup efforts. The timetable to restart the pipeline remains unclear. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. 
Still to come, a Los Angeles lawmaker was caught on video fighting with an activist. It follows earlier trouble in the LA City Council. And a New Jersey Christmas tree grower says the price of the evergreens has gone up because the cost to grow them has increased. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. A Los Angeles councilman, Kevin DeLeon, was involved in a fight with an activist. A new video shows the moments before the brawl erupted. A 35-second video of the incident was posted to Twitter. You can see what appears to be DeLeon, who was wearing a Santa hat for most of the video, pushing local organizer Jason Reedy into a table. The incident happened after the crowd surrounded him, following him to an exit. You can also see Reddy holding a phone in DeLeon's face. The crowd was calling for his resignation because of leaked audio earlier this year that he and another council member made racist comments about a fellow council member's child. That audio prompted the resignation of the Los Angeles City Council president. DeLeon said in a statement that he was acting in self-defense after being headbutted by Reedy. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has scheduled a special election for February to replace late U.S. Congressman Donald McEachin, who died last month soon after winning re-election. Several candidates have already launched bids, including Democrat State Delegate Lamont Bagby. He said he wants to, quote, take on radical Republicans who are trying to reverse the progress we have made. Lawyer Joe Preston and businessman Trevoris Marks have also begun bids. Highlighting his service in the U.S. Army, Marks said he isn't a career politician while describing himself as a progressive Democrat. Virginia State Senator Jennifer McClellan filed a statement of candidacy. Her team told media outlets that she would be making a major announcement. Democrat McEachin won re-election in November by defeating Republican Leon Benjamin. Benjamin has said he'll run in the special election. McEachin's office says the 61-year-old congressman died in late November after a battle with cancer. He was preparing to serve his fourth term in Congress. A former women's soccer player from Virginia Tech is suing her ex-coach. Now a federal judge has ruled that the suit can continue. According to ex-player Kirsten Henning, she refused to kneel in support of social justice initiatives, including Black Lives Matter. She says her coach retaliated, which violated her First Amendment rights. Prior to the team's opening game in 2020, a unity statement issued by a committee for racial and social justice was read over the loudspeakers. Henning and two of her teammates refused to show support by kneeling with the rest of the team. According to a ruling issued by a federal judge, at halftime, the coach berated Henning in front of her teammates and limited her playing time in subsequent games. Henning resigned from the team after the third game. The coach argues that his actions were due to her play. After hearing oral arguments from both parties, the court sided with Henning to allow the case to proceed to trial. Another coach in the hot seat, Texas men's basketball coach Chris Beard. He's been arrested on a felony charge for family violence. Jail records show that Beard was arrested by Austin police early Monday morning. The charge is assaulting a family or household member and impeding breathing. It's a third-degree felony with a possible punishment of 2 to 10 years in prison. According to the arrest affidavit, a woman who told police she is Beard's fiance said they had been in an argument. She said she broke his glasses before he, quote, became super violent. The woman told police Beard choked her from behind with his arm around her neck and she couldn't breathe for about five seconds. The school suspended Beard without pay until further notice. The company Detect is voluntarily recalling more than 11,000 COVID tests. It says the tests are too likely to give a false negative result. The test is an over-the-counter nasal swab. The three recalled batches were shipped to customers from July 26th to August 26th. Detect says it has not received any reports of false negatives and the recall is being done out of an abundance of caution. It is offering a refund for the affected tests. You can find more information on the FDA website. Twitter is cleaning out its closet and metaphorically holding a yard sale. The social media giant is auctioning off dozens of items from its headquarters in San Francisco. 
Among the memorabilia up for grabs, a large statue of the Twitter bird and a giant sculpture planter in the shape of an at symbol. The auction from Heritage Global Partners kicks off January 17th and ends the following day. Opening bids are $25 and up. Twitter has done some belt tightening since Elon Musk took over, including layoffs. But the president of the auction company said in an interview with Fortune that this sell-off is not a desperate cash grab. Winter storms left over 20 inches of snow during the weekend in Ketchum, Idaho. That's according to a National Weather Service video posted on Twitter. A powerful winter storm system moved across the U.S. northwest, plains, and southwest on Monday. It brought frigid temperatures, blizzard-like conditions, and freezing rains that threatened to snarl traffic and cause power outages. The National Weather Service warned the storm threatens to wreak havoc for millions of people from Idaho to Wisconsin and as far south as Arizona and New Mexico. That's until Thursday as it slowly makes its way east. The snow and winds were expected to cause whiteout conditions on roadways, making driving treacherous or even impossible for motorists. Several school districts in Idaho, South Dakota, and Nebraska delayed the start of classes or canceled them altogether on Monday due to the weather. Customers looking to purchase a real Christmas tree this year may find higher prices as farmers face high inflation and steep input costs. If you're looking to bring home a fresh Christmas tree this year, prepare to pay a little more. That's because, like just about everything else, costs for farmers have gone up. Fertilizer prices going up 350%. Fuel prices up 500% for off-road diesel. Uh, labor's going up. Minimum wage increases, you know, everything is relative. John Wyckoff runs the Wyckoff Christmas tree farm with his wife Leslie in New Jersey. On 170 acres, there are roughly 70,000 trees growing. And this year, it's been one challenge after another. The season saw a slow start due to rain, and then costs for everything kept climbing. The Wyckoffs aren't alone in facing those pressures. A recent survey of U.S. wholesale producers and distributors by the Real Christmas Tree Board found by a wide margin prices are set to go up. They told us um, 71%, the largest range, 71% they were going to increase their wholesale price from 5 to 15%, somewhere in that window. Wyckoff's rising input costs mean he too will have to raise prices. That means some families will spend more for a tree, leaving less for the stuff meant to go under it. And that's tough for John, who prides himself on his product. We really strive to put out the best possible product we can. Still, even with a bump in cost. I bought three trees today, one for my son's house and two for my own. Some customers are undeterred. The National Guard brought Santa Claus and Joy to an Alaska native village. It's part of their annual Operation Santa Claus tradition. A large National Guard plane landed in the Inupiat community carrying Santa and all his goodies. Santa and Mrs. Claus presented gifts to each child and posed for pictures with them. Each backpack was filled with gifts, books, snacks, and more. The community showed their appreciation with a drum and dance group leading the celebration in the school gym. The city's mayor said Santa's visit is valuable to kids in the village. Um, for us, it was a wonderful opportunity. It's about bringing in the National Guard in a non-stressful event so the kids could see them doing good work that's not uh, during a scary event, and as well as to see that uh, volunteers coming in to do good things. Traditionally, the Alaska National Guard and the Salvation Army select three Alaska Native villages for visits. This is the first time Nuiqsut was chosen. The village is home to fewer than 500 people and is located on Alaska's oil-rich North Slope, about 30 miles south of the Arctic Ocean. Following a gas leak last year, the National Guard sent a civilian tribal liaison to relay any concerns back to military leadership. During the holiday season, villagers thanked the National Guard for their good work. And just ahead, two senior U.S. officials held talks with China's vice foreign minister on Sunday and Monday. And Mongolia is making a state-owned mining company public after corruption allegations. The government responds to a massive protest in the country's capital last week. We'll have the details soon when we return.
Welcome back. In a visit to China, a senior U.S. delegation discussed ways to improve ties and the Taiwan situation. The two sides also laid the groundwork for Secretary of State Antony Blinken's first China trip planned in the new year. Entity's Tiffany Meyer has the story. A high-level U.S. delegation is in China. Two senior U.S. officials spoke with China's vice foreign minister on Sunday and Monday. They are Daniel Crittenbrink, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Affairs, and Laura Rosenberger, Senior Director for China Affairs of the White House National Security Council. The visit is in preparation for Secretary of State Antony Blinken's first visit to China early next year, which aims to keep ties between the U.S. and China on course. But the two countries still have ongoing disagreements, including about Taiwan and over U.S. sanctions against several Chinese officials. China slammed Washington the same day the delegation was in the country, saying the U.S. sanctions over its alleged abuses in Tibet were, quote, a gross interference in China's internal affairs. The comment came after the U.S. announced sanctions on Friday, targeting some Chinese Communist Party officials. Two of them are from Tibet. Beijing has been accused of using harsh policies to quell ethnic dissent and control religious activities in the region. The sanctioned list also includes a CCP official in connection with the persecution of Falun Gong. The U.S. delegation also plans to visit South Korea and Japan to consult on a range of regional issues. China is expected to be on the agenda. A London court hears the case of Zhang Li, the billionaire co-chair of Chinese developer RNF. The U.S. is seeking him on charges of bribery of public officials in San Francisco. The Northern District of California issued a warrant accusing him of bribing U.S. officials to obtain permits for a construction project. Between 2015 and 2020, Zhang allegedly provided banquet and hotel accommodation to the former San Francisco public affairs chief who was visiting China. Zhang has been arrested by police and is now facing extradition proceedings to the United States. He has offered to bail himself out with more than $18 million. RNF is headquartered in Guangzhou, China. It operates in the U.S. through a U.S.-based subsidiary known as ZNL. Former U.S. Marine pilot Daniel Duggan was arrested in Australia. He is accused of breaking a U.S. arms control law. A 2017 indictment says he trained Chinese military pilots to land on aircraft carriers. It also says he provided military training to Chinese pilots through a South African flight school on three occasions in 2010 and 2012. Duggan's lawyer said he denies breaching any law. He says Duggan is an Australian citizen who has renounced his U.S. citizenship. Duggan was allegedly contracted directly by an unnamed Chinese national to provide services to a Chinese state-owned company. That included evaluations of Chinese military pilot trainees, testing of naval aviation-related equipment, and instruction on landing planes on aircraft carriers. Mongolia plans to take a state-owned mining company public. The company is involved in a corruption scandal that sparked a massive protest last week. State-owned ETT mines the majority of Mongolia's coal. It holds most of the 6 billion tons of deposits near the Chinese border. However, the government said in October that about 400,000 tons of coal that the company produced in recent years is unaccounted for. Earlier allegations suggested that between 2011 and 2017, nearly 1 million tons of coal was exported without being registered. Last week, thousands of protesters took to the streets of the capital, Ulaanbaatar, demanding action against those they called coal thieves. The prime minister is suggesting making the government-owned companies public so the mining sector will be made open to citizens and therefore eliminate corruption. Mongolia's justice minister says the government is working to ensure the investigation won't disrupt exports from the project. They will also avoid scrutiny from Chinese coal buyers who account for about 85 percent of the country's coal sales. 
Mongolia plans to appoint an international auditor to look into ETT's financial status. All contracts signed by the company are now publicly available. They've also disclosed details about more than 20,000 truck owners involved in the company's coal shipments. Authorities are looking into more than 7,000 trucks that repeatedly shipped coal to the Chinese border between 2013 and 2017, but which appear to have arrived empty. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the Kremlin cancels Russian President Putin's usual year-end marathon press conference. The news comes 10 months after the start of the Ukraine war. And thousands of British railroad workers plan to start strikes over the Christmas season. Workers want more pay and better working conditions. More shortly here on NTD News Today. The U.S. Air Force says it has successfully tested a hypersonic missile. The test took place off the coast of Southern California. The hypersonic missile was launched from a bomber while in the air. The United States has been testing its hypersonic missile capabilities amid growing concerns that Russia and China developed their own hypersonic weapons more. The Lockheed Martin missile reached over five times the speed of sound after it was fired from the bomber. The Air Force says the missile flew its scheduled flight path and detonated at its target. Hypersonic missiles improve the Air Force's capacity to carry out precise attacks. They enable fast reaction strikes against strongly defended ground targets. They can also avoid detection by typical U.S. weapons detection systems. The Kremlin says President Vladimir Putin will not hold his traditional televised year-end news conference this month, 10 months into what Russia calls its special military operation in Ukraine. The event is a staple on Putin's calendar. He shows his command of issues and showcases his stamina. He sits alone on a stage in a large auditorium for a question-and-answer session that can last over four hours. A Kremlin spokesman was asked in a call with reporters whether a date had been set for this year's news conference. He said there won't be one before the new year. He said Putin would find other ways to communicate with journalists, noting he had held other news conferences, including on his trips abroad. Kosovo will apply to join the European Union this week. That's according to the country's prime minister. The country is the last in the Western Balkans to apply for EU membership. The prime minister says the application process could take years or even decades. Albanian-majority Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008, yet five EU countries, along with Serbia, Russia, and China, don't recognize Kosovo's statehood. Before possible EU membership, Kosovo would need to normalize relations with Serbia. The EU is already working on an agreement that it hopes the two sides can reach within a year. A German prisoner took two prison guards hostage and threatened them. The man is serving a life sentence for a synagogue shooting. He allegedly threatened the guards with an unidentified object and tried to escape. Saxony's justice minister says prison authorities know how dangerous this prisoner is and he's being closely monitored. He previously tried to escape by climbing a fence and had been transferred to maximum security. He was sentenced to life in prison in 2020 after fatally shooting two people near a synagogue in eastern Germany on a Jewish holy day. He live-streamed the shooting and admitted to anti-Semitic motives. Prosecutors said his aim was to kill as many people inside the synagogue. Railways across the U.K. are facing major disruption today as thousands of rail workers start a series of strikes over the Christmas season. British trade union, the RMT, has planned strikes by tens of thousands of railway workers across December and in early January after failing to find an agreement with train operators. More than 40,000 railway workers are due to walk out today and tomorrow, December 16th and 17th, and the 24th and 27th. Two 48-hour walkouts are scheduled in January as well. Britain faces widespread industrial unrest in the run-up to the Christmas holiday and into January. Workers struggling with double-digit inflation have resorted to walkouts to demand better pay and working conditions. 
Australia's largest telecommunications firm says over 130,000 customers were impacted by an internal error that exposed customer details. Telstra holds almost 19 million customer accounts, equivalent to three-quarters of Australia's population. It said an internal review found the details were made publicly available due to a misalignment of databases. In a blog post, Tesla said some customers' names, numbers, and addresses were listed when they should not have been. The announcement comes after the company in October suffered what it called a small data breach that affected employee data. Australia has been on high alert since telecom firm Optus revealed in September that a cyber attack may have compromised up to 10 million customer accounts. It was one of Australia's biggest cybersecurity breaches. Just ahead, Apollo's chariot fountain is lifted from its base in the gardens of the Palace of Versailles. It's the beginning of an 18-month restoration of the gilded lead sculpture. And Madrid, Spain hosts its first ice sculpture exhibition, unusual given the hot, dry climate of the country. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. to have you back with us. Apollo's chariot fountain has been lifted from its base in the gardens of the Palace of Versailles. It's the beginning of an 18-month restoration of the gilded lead sculpture. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the restoration work. For the first time, the iconic Apollo's chariot sculptures are being removed from the fountain at Versailles. The artwork is by Jean-Baptiste Tuby. It was created in 1671 during the reign of Louis XIV, also known as the Sun King. Until now, restoration work was limited to its surface. It was already considered as an urgent matter when I started at Versailles. So it's about time that 10 years later we get the opportunity to do so. And that's what's happening thanks to the support of our sponsor, CGA CGM, who came forward for this project. So we are proud to do it now because, as you know, we are preparing for the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. Apollo's chariot fountain consists of 13 statues and weighs more than 30 tons. The metal structures which support the fountain have rusted and warped, and the damage has left the fountain in need of critical remedial work. Apollo has suffered the impact of time, and over the three centuries, the metallic structure which support the sculpture made of lead have rusted and collapsed, bringing the whole structure down. There are big cracks in the sculpture because of that. And it's not because of the lead, but the metallic structure in each sculpture. The restorers will first disassemble the 13 statues. Then they will regild them and strengthen the stone base. This restoration work will consist of stripping all the paint off, rebuild a strong metallic structure for each sculpture, putting each damaged sculpture back into shape, and putting it all back together. This work will take close to a year, and it will be quite something. And then we'll see the crane again where you will see Apollo dressed in gold come back to its fountain. Parisians are looking forward to seeing the Apollo statue in full glory again. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Spain is famous for its Mediterranean climate with hot, dry summers, but now Madrid is hosting its first international ice sculpture exhibition, and Spaniards love it. Here's the story. Madrid has launched the 2022 Ice Festival, an international exhibition featuring some of the world's best ice sculptures. This year we have one of the best exhibitions because we have used more than 100 tons of ice and we have had the best sculptures in the world from 10 different countries and there are people of the highest level. This is the first time the Spanish capital has put on an ice sculpture exhibition and it has become an instant hit. I think the figures are spectacular. I find it incredible that they can do something so spectacular with eyes. They are very detailed figures. The truth is that I loved it. It is very, very nice and I highly recommend coming to see it. It's the first time I've seen something like this. It is spectacular. It is wonderful. They are great pieces like this unicorn. It is beautiful. Everything is wonderful and fantastic. The sculptures are kept frozen in a specially designed room. 
Very cold, very cold, very cold. My hands are frozen. You have to come prepared, of course, but highly recommended, highly recommended. The expeditions commissioner said the impermanence of ice is a reflection of reality. It's very hard, but very delicate at the same time. It is very beautiful to work with, but you have to be aware of how ephemeral it is and that it ends up leaving. The most general comment is, what a pity, isn't it? And I always tell them that it's like life itself. It is very beautiful while you live it, but it is ephemeral. A total of 12 teams compete in the competition, with sculptors coming from Canada, the US, Japan, Italy and France. Coming up, falconry continues to be popular in the Arab world. It's a traditional sport that dates back thousands of years among nomadic groups. And a cat warning in Qatar, the furry creatures are trying to steal the thunder from World Cup footballers. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. The World Cup may be dominating headlines, but another traditional sport is also thriving in Qatar, falconry. The pastime has endured for millennia in the Arab world, and today's Andrew Thomas has more on these trained birds of prey. Every day, falconer Sultan bin Nasser al-Humaydi drives out before sunset to train his beloved falcon in the desert in Doha. It's a traditional sport that dates back thousands of years among a group of nomadic Arab tribes. Previously, falconry was a source of livelihood. Four, five households would survive from the hunts. A man would hunt and share the food with his neighbors. Now it has become a hobby. There's less hunting. It's a hobby that brings us joy. It allows us to break the mundane routine at work. It's entertainment. The 43-year-old Qatari owns five falcons. He trains them to catch ducks and pigeons six days a week. It's a family tradition. He owned his first falcon when he was just 10 years old. I've been surrounded by falcons since I was a boy. This is a tradition we inherited from our grandfathers. Our fathers and grandfathers in turn inherited this from their grandfathers. The love of falcons is something deeply ingrained in us. They've been with us since we were kids. This is a hobby we want to pass on to our children. The falconers need to keep up with their birds when they're hunting, so they speed across the rocky desert in a 4x4 vehicle. Al-Humaydi said the falcons come from different regions. Some are bred in farms in Europe and some in Iran. But people do catch wild ones for training, too. The relationship I have with the falcons, they are now like our children. We care about the falcons like we care about our children. If your child is sick, you would lose sleep over this. It's the same for the falcons. If it gets sick, you don't stop worrying until you take it to the clinic. Figure out what's going wrong and treat it. Al-Humaydi has brought falcons for his children, and he's glad that the youth are also passionate about the traditional sport. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Soccer players aren't just competing with rival sportsmen at the World Cup in Qatar. Felines are also out in force, stretching their paws and stealing the limelight from players. The furry creatures haunt stadiums, training bases and press conferences. A cat intruder interrupted Vinicius Jr. during a World Cup press conference in Doha. It jumped onto the table as the Real Madrid winger was talking to reporters. Brazil's press manager took swift action. He stroked the cat's head, lifted it up, and tossed it off the table. England defender Kyle Walker said a cat named Dave was the team's lucky charm. He adopted the cat and took it back to England. Last week, France forward Randall Colomoani told reporters teammate Usman Dembele was afraid of cats, making the rest of the team chuckle. Stray cats are common on the streets of the Qatari capital, a problem said to have worsened during the pandemic. We don't always have to reach for over-the-counter medications to relieve pain. There are some notable alternatives. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. It's common to reach for pills when we experience aches and pains, but there are some other options to consider like rest, relaxation or a natural remedy. Natural remedies have a long history. In some cases, they can be more powerful than over-the-counter medications. They can also be more comforting. 
have less side effects and be more cost effective. They are also great alternatives for folks who don't react well to pharmaceuticals. Let's look at four examples starting with willow bark. Willow bark is one natural pain reliever that may be useful. It has been used for centuries to help ease inflammation. Inflammation is the common cause for most aches and pains. It can be brewed in a tea or come in liquid and capsule form. It may relieve pain because it is a good source of salicin. Salicin is a very similar ingredient to what is found in aspirin. Some suggest it can help with headaches, lower back pain, and minor arthritic flare-ups. Willow bark may have some side effects, so be sure to consult with your natural health practitioner. Number two on the list is turmeric. Turmeric is a popular spice best known for its yellow color and use in curries. It is rich in a compound called curcumin. Curcumin is recognized for its antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. The quickest and easiest way to consume turmeric is to simply mix it into milk. Then add some ground black pepper. Turmeric is a phenomenal spice, so look deeper into its life-giving properties. Number three on the list is cloves. Cloves may also help to relieve pain. Cloves features an active compound called eugenol. This is used in some topical over-the-counter pain creams. If using clove oil, dilute it with olive oil or another carrier oil, then apply it to the affected area. And number four on the list is heat and ice. Heat and ice are tested and true treatments for pain relief. They can help take care of moderate pain and reduce swelling. Cold works best to bring down swelling. Heat works best to loosen up joints and muscles. So there you have it. Willow bark, turmeric, cloves, plus heat and ice. A marine fossil just discovered in Australia is being compared to the Rosetta Stone. It's the complete skeleton of an elasmosaurus from around 100 million years ago. That's a type of long-necked marine reptile that coexisted with the dinosaurs during the early Cretaceous period. It's rare to find a fossil of the elasmosaurus with the head and the body together since the animal had such a long, slender neck. A team of paleontologists from Queensland Museum Network is conducting the research. We still, there's still so much we don't know about these animals that were swimming in this ancient inland sea 100 million years ago including well, how many species of these long-necked plesiosaurs, for instance, were there. So something as simple as that, just how many species there were, we don't really know exactly. So this animal here that has a head with a body attached to it allows us to unravel some of that species diversity. Australia's Queensland was largely covered in a vast sea during the early Cretaceous period, so fossils of marine reptiles are commonly found across the state. But this is the first complete skeleton of its kind. A 90-year-old woman in Illinois finally received her diploma 71 years after she first enrolled in college. Joyce DeFau started as a freshman at Northern Illinois in 1951, but dropped out to get married. Later, one of her 17 grandchildren, herself a student at Northern Illinois, convinced her grandmother to go back to school. It took three years for DeFau to finish her education, which she did online, partly in response to the pandemic. It was the first time she had ever used a computer. On Sunday, Joyce was finally able to put on the cap and gown and cross the stage to pick up her bachelor's degree. She's a true example of lifelong learning, a special inspiration to others, her family, and her 24 great-grandchildren. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.